out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Hello and welcome. This is the C86 Show. I'm David Eastall. As you know, we love a special guest. This week, it's going to be the turn of B. Marshall, one-time member of The Crazies, a very short-lived band, but also The Sound on their first album and tour in that early years. Anyway, this is the interview. And just a bit of a word up, The Crazies um, recorded this session in December 1978, which also featured Pete Williams and, um, and various other members who were in The Outsiders and some went on to form The Sound. So that includes Adrian Borland, Graham Bailey on bass, Adrian James on drums, and also B. Marshall on clarinet. And this was a recording that has just come out on Optic Nerve Records from Preston. It's titled A Simple Vision LP. And um, yes, is there any more interesting information? Yeah, you'll get the gist when you listen to this interview. So after several minutes of casual chat, we got down to that very exciting subject that was the early formative years. Make notes or take notes, because I will test you at the end. Make sure you are paying attention. Anyway, B, it's over to you. I was lucky because I was brought up by my 18-year-old aunt who was really into music. So I got into music really, really early. And I mean, I remember her buying records when I was three, four years old, and it would have been Helen Shapiro, Dusty Springfield, The Beatles. So I think the first band I ever really liked as a kid was The Beatles. Yes. And with the Beatles was the first album I think I ever had. Yeah, nice. That's great. So did you, yes, a, a cool auntie. This is this is always quite handy, isn't it, really? <laughs> <laughs> well, it's it is. It, it it can be good. I mean, a lot of people I think she was I think she was desperate to keep me entertained because I was probably quite a boisterous, you know, four year three, four year old, five year old. Yes. Um, and in those days, you had the cheapest way you could listen to music, new music, would be to go to a record shop and go into one of the listening booths. Yes. And actually have them play, you know, the latest releases. I so know. I do have memories of going into listening booths with her and, you know, hearing all this music. So yes. I think it was her influence that, that kind of got me interested really early on. Yes. So were you um, quite not just a busy child, but did you did you sort of get a, a musical instrument quite early in your life? I had to learn the piano to get into the right state grammar school. Right. So, so my parents, yeah, so my parents kind of got me started, I think at about eight, I started right. learning the piano. You learned the scales, you sorted it out straight away, actually. No, yeah, sort of hothoused, <laughs> weren't you, at that stage in life? I'm and not did... sure it, it was helpful playing with any of the bands I played with because none of the others could ever read music. No, they're hopeless, aren't they? You know, just most bands have no yeah. idea, do they? I don't think I've hardly ever met an indie band who understood much about that side of life. Well, it's difficult when you're jamming and you're kind of... I mean, in a way, it's where... If you've been trained, you're so used to being told what key this is in. And it's yes. a really weird feeling when you go into a jam session and you kind of go, you know, they're all playing away and you're like, okay, well, what key are we in? And they go, well, I don't know. You know, you'll have to find it. <laughs> oh, bless them. Just, just bless their sort of amateur quality. It's interesting. <laughs> I've done um, an interview with, there was one particular producer and he was just saying that it, it, 
it was in, you know, he sort of was in the UK most of the 70s and 80s and then went to America. But he said the difference was huge, actually, because the American musicians were really competent and uh, studied music really well. So, but it was also quite difficult because at times it was like, like we need to try and do something else. And they were quite stuck. I mean, if he suggested something a bit odd, they would go, no, that doesn't work at all. Sorry, we can't do that. And it's like, but, the, you know, an English British kind of musician would have gone, yeah, that's fine. You know, not understanding the theory at, or, or what, you know, so they, you know, they were quite rigid. And he, these were sort of people who, you know, guitarists with Marilyn Manson who, you know, had all the tattoos and had the L.A. rocker look. But, you know, at the same time could play amazing bluegrass music and all sorts of other instruments because they'd studied it really religiously and then got the image, you know. So it was kind of, he found it kind of frustrating, basically, because it was like, this is quite boring. But I know English people would just go, yeah, I'll give that a go without questioning the fact that this doesn't work. You know, how can we do this? This is just against our our teaching that we've been given, you know, all, all the things we've been taught. So it's, um, it's kind of interesting because this country, which is tiny, isn't it, has produced a lot of quite interesting and amazing music, but it probably on paper shouldn't work. No, and I think that's one of the things that can hamper you if you study classical music or you're taught classical music, is that it closes your mind to the happy accidents that actually will result in something very, very interesting. Yes, I know. Because as you say, you know, you'll just think, oh, no, no, that's not going to work without giving it a try. Yes. And often it's, it's, it's doing things... Just going with your guts is probably better than, you know, using your head too much. Yes, especially when you're 16 and probably smoked and drunk a lot as well. It just helps the creative flow, doesn't it? So um, <laughs> as long as you remember to hit record and listen to it in the morning. So um, and work out which bits are worth it and which bits aren't. But that's, that's the wonders of youth. So then as you were sort of hitting 16, were you leaving school at that stage or were you... Kind of no, no, I stayed on until I was 18. Then I went on to college to do a degree in psychology, which wasn't actually my choice. And that's kind of when I met, I was introduced to Adrian Ball and Adrian James and Graham Bailey. Because there was a, a guy who was on my course, my psychology course. We'd been at school with um, the two Adrians. And we just happened to be talking about music. And he said, you've got a really weird taste in music. He said, but, but I've got a friend who's got a same, similar weird taste in music. I think I should put the two of you together. Mm. And it worked. And, and, and it worked. And were you kind of, because mostly, you know, I don't know, it's a bit of gender stereotyping here, but a lot of young boys, they're either going to be into football or into music in, in that kind of world. So were they, you know, were they like, oh, we want to be in a band, we want to be in a band? Did they have that kind of quality about them that they were just like, we want to be in a band? We don't know what that means, but it looks like a good idea. Well, they, they were already uh, Adrian James, which I call Jan. We've always called Jan. It, Jan it does, and, there's a lot of Adrians and Robs here, aren't there, in this kind of, kind of um, Pete's, that's the one. I don't know, there seems to be quite a few people with all the same names, which is quite irritating, isn't it? It's not their, it's not their fault, it was their parents. So um, I think Adrian Borland and Jan were already in The Outsiders, so they were already in the band with Bob Lawrence. Um, and then shortly afterwards, I think Bob decided to go on to university and then Graham stepped in and took over on bass. Um, so yeah, they were already in a band. So there was none of this wanna be in a band. They were already in a band when I met them. 
Yes. And um, and did you sort of, did you have sort of, you know, like, actually, I want to be in a band as well. Had that sort of crossed your sort of mind at all? Or were you... Never. No. <laughs> Never. <laughs> right. God, that's good. So when did you start playing the clarinet, though? I mean, you mentioned piano. Um, the clarinet, I think, I, by the time I did my debut with the Outsiders, I'd probably been learning for about three or four years. So again, at school, I yes. just had, I actually wanted to learn the saxophone. Um, because it was an all-girls grammar school, we had um, no male teachers of at all, all female teachers, and they couldn't find a female saxophonist to come and teach. The nearest they could offer me was clarinet. Um, God, that's so shit. Yes. Anyway, <laughs> you know, such a, yes. <laughs> I know these kind of moments, aren't they? They're, just, they're small, but they could be huge, really, aren't they? Because the, the interesting thing was that by the time I decided to learn, everybody had already raided the cupboard for the loan instruments, and the only one that was left was a metal clarinet. Right. And they were really, the school were really apologetic with, you know, we're terribly sorry, but, you know, that's all we've got left. And I said, well, fine, you know, it's. I wanted to play the saxophone. It looks like a soprano sax. Let's give it a whirl. Yes, absolutely. So I was quite happy that um, it's just a happy coincidence that uh, metal clarinet was the last instrument left. Yeah. Did it? Did you pick? Did it? Sort of, were you able to pick it up quite quickly? Oh. Oh. Do you freeze? Um. Yes, it froze then. But oh. is it? Is it back? Um, yes, yes because I think having learned the piano, you're used to thinking about several notes at the same time. And then all of a sudden you're kind of, you know, you're playing an instrument where all you have to concentrate is on producing one note at a time. Yes. And it seems quite, you know, next to the piano, it seemed quite easy. Mm -hmm. Yes, well, that's good. That's good, and it's also got a beautiful sound to it. Because actually, with your the, the band and this period that you that you enter the the wonderful world that is, are these kind of chaps is that um, so they were in the outsiders, weren't they? But there was also the another band called the they were in which was called Second Layer, which Layer. they then formed, and then there was yeah. this kind of the Crazies, which was kind of a, a day gig in a studio, and then it was the sound, wasn't it? So did you yes. enter? Were you just in? You weren't in the outsiders, were you? I towards the end, yes. I used to join them on stage for just originally just a couple of tracks, and then as time went on, I think I worked my way up to about four, five, six songs that I came on and and played with with the outsiders. Yes, and this was this would have been the late kind of seventies, wasn't it? About seventy seventy eight time. Seventy eight, yeah. Yes. I met them at the end of seventy seven and I think I started playing with them in seventy eight. Yes. Did you go through a bit of a punk what what univer what area and what place and what university did you did you go to? Oh no, I went to Polly um in northeast London. My God, um, young people wouldn't even know what that is, would they? Polly. No, I think it's now the University of, of East London. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, at the time it was called North East London Polytechnic. Nice. And it was um, near Stratford, yeah. East London. So then from that, you have this session, which is what sort of optic nerve then sort of only, was it 30, oh God, 43 years later, Unearth, which is the great sort of recording of the crazies. So what, how did that sort of develop and happen, it happen at that stage? 
Can you kind of remember much about that sort of session? I, I remember a lot about the recording session. And oddly enough, because we were given a cassette of it, it had always been in my collection. So it wasn't like suddenly hearing a great lost recording. Um, I was just surprised that after that length of time, somebody was interested in actually releasing it. But, you know, <laughs> we'd all had cassettes the entire time. So. Yes. And when, and when you went in to, to do the recording, had there been much rehearsal and much kind of debate and thought about sort of what tracks you're going to be recording and, and st- su- such like? <laughs> Absolutely nothing. Because Pete was always coming up with these sort of schemes and half the time they never amounted to anything. So when he first suggested that, you know, would we be interested in writing music if he wrote a series of lyrics and then booked a studio, um, we kind of said yes, because we were all in the billet, which is a local pub, and, you know, just a happy evening. And we said, oh, yeah, yeah, you know, we'll do it. And... What we didn't know is he went off, wrote the lyrics, booked the studio, and then the next time we saw him, he said, oh, by the way, the studio is booked for next week, and um, I've done all the lyrics. Nice. That's very so, forward thinking. So, <laughs> so we were all a little bit apprehensive because it's, oh, my God, you know. Okay, well, you know, we'll just have to see how it pans out. Yes. And that's, so, that's that was the sort of moment. And did you do you know at the time? You know, we probably you know as with most things, you just accept it because you think this is normal. But then looking back, was there a sort of a sense of a bit of a not genius? But was there kind of a when you look at that scene, was there quite a creative like you thought? Yeah, these some of these some of that kind of time during during those years was a very creative and kind of expressive moment. Um. No, because I guess then they're your friends. You just They're just your friends. And it's kind of like, oh, you know, this is just another little project we're going to do. And and Pete, Pete didn't have great ambitions for the crazies. He just wanted to experience what it was like going into a studio because he knew the, all the members of the Outsiders. And I think he was just curious as to what it was like. Yeah. Um, and all he wanted to do was have, you know, a fun day. And, you know, with a view of, you know, making a few cassettes and giving them to his friends. Yes, absolutely. So it wasn't, you know, it wasn't a, a big project. It was supposed to be just a fun, a fun day. Yes. And then sort of with the, so then how does this, the project then sort of get resurrected in 2021? When did you start to sort of the, the interest in this kind of recording come to light? Well, I think. Because the interest in the sound has never actually totally gone away, and obviously the interest in in projects that Adrian Borland worked on, um, a few times it it has been mentioned, and then all of a sudden, you know, I think it got picked up on as, oh, you know, this is something that maybe we should listen to. Yes, absolutely. And uh, it was Adrian James, actually, who approached Cherry Red with some recordings, which I think had not come out. And um, I don't know exactly how it happened, but, you know, Cherry Red seemed to think that Optic Nerve would be the ideal people to license the crazies to. Yes. Well, yes, I suppose, because because there was that amazing box set that came out about the Outsiders, which is just... You know, I just 
kind of got a copy and it's like wow you really have dug deep and got every possible recording from that kind of band which is um kind of a beautiful collection really you must i guess you must feel quite chuffed to see so much of what what, what happened at that point in life um archived and sort of yes given some sort of i don't know platform to to um be heard and and also seen on with the artwork well it's it's strange because i did a few a few couple of years ago i did an interview for penny black um music and i mentioned the crazies sort of then as you know being one of the most enjoyable recording sessions that i'd ever kind of been been in mm. and uh it it kind of in a way that it was always just bubbling under, I think, the crazies. Because I think for a lot of us, it was, the, the, for me, the sound was not a happy experience, but the crazies was. Yes, yeah, I know. I think actually I haven't done the, these interviews for so long. I realised that there is a sort of a good time to leave the band or some t- a good time to sort of call, you know, do a Ziggy Stardust basically and say, that's it, let's forget it. Cause, the next chapter might not be such a fun one as the the one that we've just had but you don't know that at the time and there's always that hope isn't there so with with doing this project for optic nerve you did the you've done the artwork as well haven't you yes and was um yes did that was that relatively easy because i'm guessing when you got the cassette of that recording it was just one of those tdk cassettes with not much oh, of a cover it's frozen oh no don't, don't don't that's that's just tragic have i have i come back to life it doesn't yes, say... come back to life. Oh, thank God for that. Um, yes. So, yes, doing the artwork, did that? was there a lot of pressure to sort of put something together and to try and capture the, mm. the band and, and also the essence of the music? The, the artwork was, it was kind of, oh, there's something about my internet connection is unstable. Oh, I hate um, when it says that because it just, <laughs> it just it is like... Don't tell. That well, art like... is what I do. You know, art is what I do now. I always wanted to go to art school. It just took. Oh, me the to psychology a... just went. The psychology just went. Oh, um, okay. <laughs> and then when I, you know, ha- happened to have earned enough money that I could fund myself, I went and did what I wanted to do, which was to go to art school. Um, so... And you know, I ended up with an MA in fine art printmaking at the age of almost forty. Yes, well, it's good. I tell you, it's you've got to do it, haven't you? Really, yeah. Follow your follow your sort of instincts and dreams. Then you know, from then, just briefly, you are a member of the sound as well, though, aren't you? For the first yes. period. So was that? Did that feel a bit like the apprenticeship was the 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 bit before that with the crazies and various you know w- working with the outsiders, and then the sound? Did that feel like oh dear? Well, I'm gone. I've gone up to sixth form or the university. Um, not at first, although moving from, you know, just playing odd bits of clarinet on and, you know, not making noises <laughs> on the outsiders and the crazies, I think moving to um, working on tracks from beginning with keyboards was a big step up. Yes. And did um because on that first album, uh, is it Jeopardy? Jeopardy, yeah. which had which has some amazing songs. Did you also sort of recognise that the the songwriting and production and the the general sort of quality of it had improved and quite a huge amount? Um, 
Well, I think because we were still we were still working with Nick Robbins, um, it felt much the same. I mean, Nick recorded the crazies. So moving to do the, you know, onto the, to the sound, um, you know, we had already worked with Nick, so he didn't actually feel that different. Yes. I think what felt different was Adrian, Adrian's attitude was very different. Um, he was much more concerned with um, this being the vehicle that would fund the other smaller projects and therefore had to be, you know, much more serious. Yes. So, yeah, does that feel, you know, only 40 years ago now, 41, that's amazing. Does that feel quite strange that what you did back then has, you know, like the Spotify play, you know, monthly listen to the sound is incredible. I seem to remember sort of looking at it recently thinking, I don't know, some massive number. Do you feel quite kind of intrigued that, that the music you played and, and was, start, you know, performed on has just grown with its kind of over the years and decades? Yes, I certainly, I mean, when you record it, you certainly have no idea that, you know, decades later it will still be listened to. You think you're making music there and then at the moment, for the moment. Um, yes. So it is quite odd. Yes. And then, is this the, with, with Jeopardy, is this when you also leave kind of the sand? Is, is this your sort of moment to exit it? No, I was fired, so. Oh, blimey, um, I didn't know that. <laughs> I didn't, I didn't, I didn't know that sort of, God, that sounds like something. I did an interview with a member of the go-betweens or two, two of them. And there was a lot of tension there. Um, so yes, oh dear, that's a terrible moment. Was it, was, did you know it was coming by the way? No, 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 they had a meeting, all three of them. And then the following day we were due to play a gig at the uh, Moonlight Club. And um, the drummer and the roadie turned up with all my gear in the back of the van and rang the doorbell and I answered the door and the drummer said to me, you're sacked, now get in the van. Wow. So, <laughs> God. But it had, been, it had been extremely toxic, the atmosphere within the sound um, for a while, especially on the supporting tour of Echo and Bunnymen. Um, oh. It had really our relationships had become quite strained. Yes, gee. And it's such a shame because it was not, you know, you, you know from an outsider's point of view, you think, my God, they're kind of bunny men. They must have been, oh, it must have been magic. And that was just a toxic time. And um, yes, cheesy, crazy. Actually, there was a member of BIS, B-I-S. Um, there was a three-piece from Scotland and they... And I did an interview with her and she said, oh, it's such a shame because I, because she was in a relationship with one of the members and she said all those kind of moments of their glory days were just them having domestic arguments and literally punching each other backstage and then going out on top of the pops and singing. And she said, you know, now she just thought, if only we could have been having a nice time, but that wasn't to be. So there you go. Behind that mascara and makeup, it's all just toxic, isn't no, it? No, it can be. And it was, you know, it was, uh, but I think, Looking back, I think that was the start of Adrian's kind of mental problems. They were just, they were beginning then. Um, and I just don't think any of us really knew, knew it for what it was. You yes. know, he just was becoming quite difficult and quite moody. And um, it, 
I mean, it was really, really sad. And it's terrible when you're in a band with um, people that you regard as your friends and then all of a sudden, um, you know, you're no longer part of, not, you're not just not part of the band, you're not part of that group of friends anymore. Yes. So God, it, it does feel kind of really major. No, God, it'd be, it would be heartbreaking at that age, wouldn't it? You know, you, it'd be heartbreaking at any age, but I think with, with age, with sort of, you know, um, the passing of time, you come a bit more cynical and, you know, you try not to be bitter about everything, but you do sort of have a certain, a few more experiences that sort of slightly give you a bit more awareness. But the innocence of youth, you know, can be quite hard to cope with when you have those knocks. But you kind of have to have all those knocks, which do happen, really. Does that feel, yeah. I mean, when you when you started doing this project, because obviously Graham was in the band, who was also in the crazies, and you've got this project. Did you sort of have kind of conversations with him, how that felt? Or did did he know that it was a pretty horrendous thing that happened to you? Um, I don't think he knew, actually. Um, it was all handled by um, Dudley and Adrian Borland. Um, I don't think he was really involved in it, right? Um, very much because you know we had had a, we had previously dated, and therefore we were quite. When our relationship ended, we were quite um, strict with ourselves about keeping any feelings that we had um, out of the room when it was with discussions about music. Yes. Um, and we managed it quite well, you know, so so we carried on playing in the same band and everything was fine. Right. Um, so the the power struggle was was the Adrian and Dudley, and that was kind well, of... Well, I think particularly when Adrian James left, which was at the end of the, basically the end of the outside is the beginning of the sound, the whole dynamic changed. Um, because it was the first time I think we were playing with somebody who wasn't a friend, who had, you know, just auditioned and um, to come to the band. Um, he was also, I think at the time, I don't know, he's eight years older, which seems to make a huge difference when you're 20 and somebody's 28. Well, yes, absolutely. It makes a huge, huge difference. We had totally different tastes in music. We had totally different ambitions for what we wanted, uh, both musically and for the band. Um, and the whole dynamic changed. Yes. And I think that was the beginning of the end, really. Yes. Because it is, then, then we signed to Warners and that was the sort of nail in the coffin. Yes, the pressure. My God, the pressure. I guess when you were looking at Adrian's behaviour, you just thought that was a young person getting a bit too, I don't know, up themselves I don't know the technical term actually but you know we at that age say, well, we, we <laughs> used to just when you used to have a funny term and he used to come out with something totally ridiculous we used to have this saying that oh god rock and roll's gone to his head <laughs> <laughs> which is kind of you would think that you know you'd tell you know and when you see probably if you saw young people you, you'd just say oh that's you wouldn't really be linking it to too many other Kind of issues, just that kind of the attitude of it all, really. So that yeah, was, yeah, the sort yes. of you know the publicity and signing a contract's all gone to his head. You know that's why he's becoming difficult. And of course, it had probably had nothing to do with that at all. No, there you go. And then when when you sort of when you left the band, did that sort of did you just literally was that the the end of the kind of musical journey for you, or did you sort of go into anything else? Because I know 
um, Adrian James. He, um, he he sort of went back and did well. Didn't he went, did his degree and then sort of got a career and that was it. Did you also have a similar time where you just put the clarinet in the cupboard and went, "That's it, I've had enough." Um, kind of, but then the sound had actually got some quite good publicity in the music press. So although they maybe commercially they weren't doing that well um, in album sales, they got a lot of interest from the music press. And I was approached by quite a lot of other musicians, you know, oh, you know, would you like to come play keyboards with us? And eventually I did join another band called Persian Flowers. Um, and it was great. But then we got to the same stage again where, you know, they wanted everyone to give up everything and, you know, for the band. And yes. these guys were, um, how shall I put it, quite unreliable because they were heavily into drugs. Yes, it's going to be drugs, isn't it? And it was just <laughs> impossible. You know, I'd turn up, they were based in Plasto in the East End, and I would turn up from Surrey to Plasto to rehearse and they'd all be lying on the floor, yes. you know, just out of it. Um, and once we got this wonderful showcase gig um, at the venue and there were something like eight bands and we, we were actually quite close to the top of the um, um, set uh, of the list. And they didn't, they were late to the sound check because they had to go and score on the way. <laughs> Classic. <laughs> so we got but we got actually bumped to the first band on and of course we went on up you know because there were quite a few bands in this showcase gig we we went on stage at six in six in the evening before anybody from any of the music companies had you know turned up so it was just a complete waste of time and in the end it just all fizzled yes out. It's going to fit. No, it's not going to happen. But it, but it was great because they had a rhythm guitar. You know, it was a much bigger sound than I was used to because they actually had a lead guitarist and a rhythm guitarist. Um, and, you know, a, set, a singer who was just the vocalist. Um, so so for me, it was they, they were wonderful songwriters and they were great songs. And for me, it was wonderful to, to have all that extra stuff going on it was a much bigger sound yes but the guys just couldn't keep it together oh the persian flowers what happened to them um well it was nick nicole from wasted youth was our vocalist oh um i don't know what happened to them i think they just fizzled out as well because i don't think you know in the in the end it it, it could come to anything drugs became more important than music I know it does happen, doesn't it? Especially, I don't know what it's like now, but definitely in the eighties and nineties, it was just like it was part of the culture, you know, the drinking, smoking, making music. Because it's interesting, having done this show for a, such a long time, most bands have that five-year narrative. You know, they get together, honeymoon period, it's going well. They get a single if they can. You know, John Peel gives it play, then they get John Peel session, things are going really well. And then, you know, a bit of a tour around the country in the back of a vehicle, which they love, because you get to visit all those exotic places like Norwich, Leeds. <laughs> and then you um, then you have the album. The, what, what we call the toilet circuit. The toilet, toilet, <laughs> art, the toilet art circle. Yeah, circuit, <laughs> which is often on a Monday, Tuesday or Wednesday when no one else wants yeah. the venue. And then um, the album can be a bit tricky, you know, and then... Yeah, I mean, the second album is like, wow, good luck, guys. You know, that's like, 
yes and the th- yeah so you get the gist don't you well I do you know you think because oh. there's a kind of the dynamic and a complete lack of money and apart from that it's great isn't it <laughs> but do you not find though when you look back how many albums by bands that you like is it the first album that you like more than any of the others because was- I look back and I think you know Psychedelic Furs first album Perubu first album um, proxy music, definitely the first time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there is there is quite a pattern, you know. There is a lot, especially the the a lot of the eighties indie bands, I, I would say, because there was often that was that like wow, you really captured it. And then the tricky now what? Whereas there are a few artists and bands, you know. Though the the Smiths' first album was really bad because of the recording and the production, and they had to, you know, re-record it quickly because it just sounded terrible. And people like David Bowie spent the 60s making some really forgettable music. And then it was like, oh, my God, he's, he's learned to do it, you know. But he did, you know, you look at his, yeah, I love Bowie. That was my, first, that's my obsession. But, you know, it's like, I listen, I think, you were making this record at the same time, you know, Jimi Hendrix, The Doors, Jefferson Airplane, you presented us with this. This is just really Anthony Neely. What? what? Yes, exactly. You know, yeah. it was like, yeah. really. Yeah, I loved you till Tuesday in the laughing name. Yeah. No, it's like, <laughs> so you could have gone, oh, I'm going to a record shop, you know, Jimi Hendrix you know are you experienced oh no the love you to tuesday david bowie play you know it's like oh great mime you know and then it was like you would not see that coming so it's kind of an interesting but i agree with the yeah majority of the time you get the gist you, the think this is great, you know and and because yeah. there's no pressures there's no pressures you're actually doing what you want you probably haven't signed you're probably playing quite a lot live so it becomes quite polished and it, it's really yeah. well worked on and the songs so that you've written are probably the ones that you've been working on quite a long time. So yes. with a lot of bands, it's like, if it does work, there is that like, okay, we need another album next year because that's how it works. Because frankly, we don't want to tell you this too much, but in five years time, no one will care about you. So sorry about that. You know, because that is true as well. That's why he's like, don't spend five years because that group of people who like you now, they're going to be doing other things in five years' time. They've moved on. And the next group of 16 year to 18-year-olds will not care about you. So it's that kind of, yeah, you, you've got all your thoughts and ideas in that first album, really. And, and then it's just a case of seeing what happens. And it was interesting because kind of Suzanne Vega sort of recorded her first album. And it was like, oh, my God, it's really amazing, you know, and it's worked well. sells, you know, phenomenal amount. And it's like, right back in the studio, what have you got? And it's like, absolutely nothing. It's like, shit what are we going to do we have to get the album out because again you know no one's going to you know your fan base will just dwindle and disappear so yeah you know the creative process must be quite hard for people to real to realize that that's what's going to be the gig but you don't know you're going to make it you haven't got that kind of you know this is no this but be- i think the first album because you don't think or you don't know you're going to make it or you don't even think you're going to make it you don't feel any pressure to conform or to to provide something that's expected you just do what you want to do yes absolutely. and I think often you see the the true personality of a band in their first recording before they have to kind of as you say write to a formula or get assigned a producer or you know all the things that I think ruin the sound of a band yes I think there is that there is a really difficult 
for a band who wants to continue beyond that kind of few years, it is really difficult. And mm. there's a few who have done it, you know, whether you know one likes them or not. But I'm sort of impressed that anybody can keep it going because there is going to be a bit where your fans have just disappeared, really. And God knows how you're going to make it. But you know, like the Rolling Stones or you too. But you know, they, you know, it's like you could debate the music, but you think God, you've stuck with it, which is unbelievable, really, because. Um, You've you've had to stick with each other's personalities through all those experiences. I mean, God, what a thought! It, yeah, and it's probably not just that, but it's you know the the more successful you become, probably the the more studio time you're given, and the more gizmos you're given, and the bigger the budget. And I think people get lost in in that side of things. Yes. And actually, the creativity comes sometimes from having to make do with what you've got yes. and having to adapt, you know, to make something. I mean, the, the early second, the early second layer was, was quite amazing because I used to sit in sometimes when, the, when um, Graham and Adrian were rehearsing. And often Graham would turn up with these little boxes that just made noises that he built because there just wasn't anything out there that yes. would do it. You know, it, it promotes, I think, the lack of, at the beginning, the lack of budget and the lack of access to, you know, whatever's out there forces you to be, to think really outside the box. Yeah, absolutely. And to be much more creative. Kind of yeah yes so there you go the crazies that that um, that recording session in one day just <laughs> captured everything and more which is yeah I mean it must be quite it must be so surreal especially Cherry Red bringing out this incredible box set of the the outsiders as well you just think you're not going to quite believe this but <laughs> it was like look at this. <laughs> this has been my youth which I'd really never thought it would be interested so you're gonna yeah it, and the great thing is with both of those you know releases is that there will be people around the world who are sort of constantly picking up because like a you know doing some massive research I just looked at Spotify I'm like god look at the sound they've just got you know like I think it was 150 130,000 listens a month and it's like Wow, that's a lot wow, of that is a lot. That's yeah. a lot of people who are kind of, and then they go, oh, what else? oh my God, they're in this and they're in this. So it is kind of interesting that you suddenly find yourself. And I suppose with Adrian, there is a sort of now this cult status about him and his work and people making little films about him and stuff, which must feel also a bit strange because obviously you realise it comes to a horrendous kind of end, which um, is horrible actually, isn't it? So, um, mm. yes. Mm. Did you, when, when, you know, the news kind of broke and you, you found out, did you kind of talk to the other members of the band to sort of have some sort of kind of not support, but just kind of processing of, of all that? No, kind of... not, at, not at all, actually, because I was not in touch with Dudley. Uh, I think Graham was in the States by then. Mm. Um, so, no, not really. I mean... It was really strange. I think his mother rang me to say, to let me know what had happened. Mm. Um, yes. But it wasn't his first attempt. So there was an element of surprise, but there was also not an element of surprise um, yeah. because it, he had had several attempts prior to, you know, the, the last of 
worse one. Yeah, no, it's horrible. Just the thought of it, isn't it, really? So, um, yes. But in, so look, if you could have said something to your like 16 to 18 year old self, who was um, kind of starting out in that creative process, not only music, but painting and art and everything else. Is there something you would have just kind of wanted to whisper in their ear with the experience and the, yeah, the wisdom or something like wisdom that you've built up over the years. I just wondered if there was something you'd have thought, God, I would have just sort of given them a little, a few pointers, a few bullet points. I think, yeah, people are always asking me because the sound for me ended up so badly whether if I knew that that's, you know, was gonna be the what happened, would I still go back and do it? And I think the answer is no, I wouldn't. In all honesty, I just couldn't go through that. It was just too toxic. Mm. Um, and I think at the time, I obviously needed an outlet for creativity and I thought maybe music would be it. And then realised much later that actually art, visual arts was a good outlet also. Yes. So maybe I'd go back and say, to my younger self, no, don't play with the sound, let it go because you'll find an outlet for your creativity elsewhere. Mm, my God. Did you sort of feel with that, that kind of horrible, toxic moment, did it take a while to process that, to, um, to kind of let go, as they sometimes say? Um, it was weird because I had to, having been sacked when I was picked up to go to a gig and then having to play a gig knowing that, you know, my days were numbered um, was actually the weirdest feeling to go on stage and have to put in a, a performance having just been sacked. Mm -hmm. um, because the, well, I think if it had, if it hadn't been the Moonlight Club, I might've said no in that case, you know, F off, I'm not doing it. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> but the Moonlight Club, the guy who ran it was really a fan. He was a really nice guy. We had a, a sort of, we had regulars who would turn up to see us because we played there quite often. And there was this feeling of, it's not fair to let all these other people down. They're expecting mm. us to play. So I better go and play. But I had to say, I didn't feel like it. No, my um, God. Yes, there you go. And also my equipment was in the van. So there was also this feeling of if I don't get in the van, when am I going to see my gear? <laughs> yeah, I know. I would have had the same thought, actually. I thought they'll just chuck it in the bin, won't they? Bastards. Or you know. they'll, be, they'll be auditioning my replacement using my gear. No, thank you. <laughs> yeah, God. And was that the last time you basically saw the band was on, on stage? Yeah, well, they actually, they had fired me without having a replacement. So their manager and Adrian Ballen had to then come to me and say, could you play the next few gigs which are in the diary until we find your replacement? At which point I said, well, I will, but you need to pay me as if I'm a session musician in that case because I'm not doing it for nothing. Yes. And that was probably at that time the best salary I had earned <laughs> so I negotiated myself a 50 quid a, a gig deal to actually you know help them out as it were my god they they're complete they were completely nuts weren't they actually well I th 
but the thing was I had no idea that 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 Adrian was mentally ill and I think he probably just lost his temper and something happened and he made this on-the-spot decision because yes. many years later when I met him because you know we did actually pick up again and 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 we did have some kind of relationship post his illness um he kept saying to me but 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 why did you leave why did you not kind of put up a fight so I don't know whether you know it was meant to be was I meant to be sacked or was it just you know a bit of a poke because they didn't like what I'd done or you know and I was supposed to put up some kind of fight I have no idea Yes, that's, all, that, as I say, that is mixed messages, isn't it, really? Let's face it. It's quite clear if you've been fired. I don't think they, they say, look, we're not happy. You, you, know, you need to do something. You say, oh, OK, then perhaps. perhaps no, but there was nothing. I mean, no. I mean, the drummer just said to me, you know, Dudley just said to me, we don't like it because you've been too friendly with the bunny men on the last tour and that's disloyal to the sound. Oh my God! So there was that. It was, it was that. Blimey! It was yeah. That was part of the reason apparently. Was yeah. that you know I had I had actually talked to the headlining band and been quite friendly with them. <laughs> <laughs> God, that was almost. That's hardly Judas, but I mean, jeezy, crazy. That's, uh, it was weird. Yeah. Weird times. I would imagine it would have been much nicer to talk to a different band actually at this stage. Anyway, from your. Um, it's just you're going to be on the road with these guys. I think that I think when I, if I remember correctly, it was something like the first. It was a twenty two or twenty three gig um, tour, and the first nineteen nights were consecutive nights. Yes, they. they, they so, that is, you know, that you're is going to wrong. be with these guys kind of like every day. So yes. it's going to be much nicer if you can kind of cooperate and be, you know, civil with, with each other. And it's just going to go so much better for everyone. And at that um, stage with those gigs, because the Bunnymen were obviously, they, this was kind of their honeymoon period. Was it an amazing atmosphere on this university circuit? Was this that particular gig or was it the one that Bill Drummond had put together? Bill Drummond was there, so I don't know whether he had put it together, but I know that Karova's idea was that they had just signed two bands yes. um, who had just brought out their first albums. Therefore, why not combine the two and put them both out on tour together? Yeah. Um, I'm not sure that it worked that well for the Bunnymen because I think they, they, they were already better known than we were yeah um, their album was quite slick they had a, a much bigger following and they probably could have earned money by getting someone to buy onto the tour and yes. just being told by Karova that no 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 you're going to take you know the sound along probably wasn't you know great for them yeah um, which, which was why I thought you know one ought to be a little bit more gracious and and accept that, you know, they were being kind, actually accepting to Karova's idea. Yeah, absolutely. No, I can just remember those early years of the Bunnymen. I mean, that 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 period was kind of, they, they certainly, they came out of that Liverpool scene, Eric's, didn't they? And they, they mm. were one of the bands who just had that kind of quality, which made them look very good. And in a way, it was when the Smiths appeared, I thought in 83, where they had almost lost that kind of, momentum and the Smiths came along as if to say there's a new kid in town 
and it's going to be us. So yeah, it's an interesting period. But yeah, the bunny mentor must have, and also you you know working that hard for sort of a month must have just absolutely fried everybody really. Oh, I mean, you know, at that time, I think I had strep throat. I kept having infections of strep throat. Um, and if it hadn't been for their crew, I would never have survived that tour because their road manager was taking my temperature every night. And he was saying, you know, if it gets over 102, you're not being on stage. You know, I'm not having it. I'm not going to be responsible for somebody, you know, <laughs> somebody's really <laughs> sick on this tour. So, you know, they they... Actually, I think if they hadn't been quite so good, I'd never have made it. No. Because, because I did have a temperature of 102 and 103, I think, one night. And the only reason that I made it through that tour was because their road manager used to have a word with the roadies, their road crew, and say, look, you know, can one of you sleep on the floor and give your bed up because, you know, that their keyboard player is really sick. Which was very kind, but it did mean did feel slightly uncomfortable sharing a bed with a man I'd never met before. <laughs> oh, <that laughs> but you know, they, they were actually really, really kind. And you know, they looked after me and made sure that you know I survived the tour. Yes. My God, you've got great rock and roll stories, haven't you? This <laughs> is just, you know. And I bet their tour bus was much better as well than the sound. Um, well, I never went in the tour bus because what, what used to happen was that, you know, they I would turn up whatever, the, the sound never booked anything. We had to sleep in the back of the van. So what would happen would be that that um, I would just meet them back at the hotel. I'd be told which, which roadie's room was being, you know, prepared for me. And then the following morning, I'd kind of make it back to the sound van and on we'd go to the next to the next gig but yeah. it meant that at least I had you know a good night's sleep absolutely and and was was fit for the you know or either was not going to collapse the following night on stage god you get to an age you need a proper mattress you can't be faffing about it can you really with just <laughs> crappy stuff <laughs> let's face well, it so uh, uh, you know that was what led to a huge row which I think also probably helped to get me fired was that yes you had a good mattress. I had I went after the bunny mentor, I went storming into Corova and actually abused Greg Penny, who was, you know, in charge of, of us, as opposed to the bunny men who Rob Dickens was looking after. And, um, you know, I said to him, you know, you, you knew that I had strep throat and you said you, that, you know, we would be put up in B&Bs. And, you know, the first gig that we go on, Adrian's appealing for somebody in the audience to give us a, a floor to sleep on. You know, what the hell's been going on? And it turned out that um, Carova had given Adrian Borland £2,000 for accommodation and Adrian just thought, oh, we don't really need this and just banked it. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, I called Greg Penny every name under the sun and you know, the poor man had actually had honoured his decision and he had actually given the money for, for, for us to be in B&Bs. There you go. God, I tell you, the murky, murky world, isn't it? Rock and roll. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yes. But anyway, you said, well, you kind of survived it, but thank God you were, you were sort of, yes, the bunny men. Every time you must hear the cutter or the back of love, you must think they saved my ass. They just saved me. Yeah, they saved my ass. But also they, I mean, you know, they were brilliantly funny. I mean, they were, off, I love, I mean, Will and, and, um, uh, Mac were just, you know, they were much like me where, you know, they had their lives back in their hometown and they were out on the road. They were there to do a job 
and they just wanted to do the best they could and they were missing you know their partners at home yes. so you know we actually had quite a lot in common um and they, they were just really very nice guys to to talk to yes well yes i know it's 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 funny it sounds like the sound was a quite a toxic little number wasn't it really it, yeah it it's was a, yeah, because most bands, even the Smiths, who were, you know, obviously having a love affair with them was quite interesting later years. But you got the feeling there was this kind of a, a kind of harmonious gang who were looking out for each other and at least had that period. It was just what happened next. Whereas the sound didn't even seem to have a honeymoon period. It sounded more, um, yeah, tricky, really. Yeah, well, I think, I think Adrian's parents were quite heavily involved in what he did. I mean, he was their only child, so I think they were super protective. And I think they had quite a lot of input also in what, what was happening. And it, I think when somebody interferes, it kind of rocks things. It rocks yes. the dynamic within, you know, um, within the band. Yes, we could see that with the Beatles or anything, couldn't we? There was two, by the end, they were all looking a bit strained in the studio, looking at each other and wondering who, who all these extra people in the studio are. Yes, yeah, and also we saw Spinal Tap where you get sort of like partners coming, <laughs> coming with knitted jumpers and ideas of, you know, Stonehenge and things. It's not going to happen, is it? <laughs> you know, it's like, yeah. And then, yeah. I don't think it was that. I think it was more that, um, you know... The strange thing with Jeopardy is I think we should have called it a day after Jeopardy because the way the way we worked always was that somebody would come in with an idea, usually Adrian, but not always for a song. And then we'd just start jamming and people would, you know, put in their contributions and it would go through almost like a filtration system. Every time you ran through, that works, that doesn't work. And it was very democratic. Yeah. And what you ended with at the at the end was something that everyone had contributed to and that had gone through all this, you know, filtration by every single member. Yes. Um, and originally it was going to be, well, you know, all the songs will be credited to the sound. And the, the, the <laughs> Graham and I had no idea until we were presented with a copy that that was not the case. So on the day Jeopardy came out, you looked at him going, my name's not on any of these writing credits. You know, I don't, you know, I'm not credited anywhere. Yeah, that's not good, is it really? I guess, was, so you, it, the, was it the case it just had Graham's, um, Adrian's name on, written yes. by, yes. Yes, and, and, and there was, he, I think he came under a lot of pressure from his parents that, well, you know, you're the one doing all the work, so what, why are you assigning, you know, rights away to other people? But they had no idea on how we worked. Yes. So, you know, that for me, I think when Jeopardy came out, it was a real kind of stab in the back almost, a sort of like, well, that's not how we work. Yes. Um, and I think most bands realise that you just got to say, we've got to have that conversation to be really clear. But then, you know, if, if you are recording or creating something as a collective, it's going to be as a collective, really, isn't it? Whether you write the lyrics or whatever, it's, it wouldn't happen if it wasn't for the other members. So you kind Well, of... I think the lyrics, no, the lyrics were always going to be Adrian's. Nobody ever um, contributed to the lyrics. But yeah. the music was actually supposed to be by the band. 
all of us equally because that's the way we worked but you know it just as I say I, I didn't realize until the arm came out that you know that that he'd reneged on that so yeah, you pick up the yeah. album and you go oh, I've just got one credit for Jeopardy <laughs> for the track <laughs> Jeopardy you know yes well, what the hell <laughs> did, that, did you have you ever I mean you know because it's one of those curious things. Do you, do you ever sort of get like a five pound royalty check or, you know, 20 Yes, pound? I do. I oh, do. That must be very exciting when that happens. It's yes. And because I, in the end, that the sound was such an unpleasant experience. Whenever I got a royalty check from the sound, I gave money away because it made me feel better. I, it was tainted. So I think the last time I got a check and it, and it was for sort of 50 quid. I, was, I went round town and I was walking around and I'd cashed it. And um, this homeless guy came up and he said, would you like to buy a poem? And I paid him 50 quid for it. <laughs> 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 and then I went away happy thinking, all oh, that awful stuff I put up with the sound has made somebody else really happy. Yes, and and like God, I must go and write another poem. It might happen again. <laughs> it's like, yes, that poor person. They, they, yeah. Well, no, they were happy for a day, but God, that's yeah. Well, no, it's a good thing. I mean, yes, it's a, it's. A, I mean, is it the case you can listen to any of this? Do you just avoid the whole kind of listening to? Anything? I don't like, listen to the sound at all, hardly ever. I mean, I got some kind of box set, I think, that came out of. A lot of sound material and it's still in cellophane yes. i've not even owned it it would be um, hard the crazies as i say is completely different yeah no it sounds like the sort of thing that everyone should have that experience really and um a good experience at that so that's brilliant yes well look thank you ever so much for giving me the time for this it's been amazing and you know congratulations on the crazies kind of album coming out which is on special vinyl color you know as well which is it's you know pushing the boat out. And Optic Nerve Records is from Preston has just done so well. They've built up such a kind of cult following now, haven't they? So Oh um, god, yeah, because I mean, you know, I looked at as I you know, I, I often don't look at labels and things anymore. And you know, I, I kind of looked at their back catalogue and I was like, oh, the monochrome set. Now I love the monochrome set. So yes. looking through what they'd done that, you know, was that I that I liked and thinking oh actually and then I spoke to Ian Orcock and we started talking about bands we'd seen and bands we liked and you know it was like oh the only ones oh the psychedelic furs and we suddenly realized that we had such a similar music yes. musical taste that um it was like oh great you know I'm so glad we're working together <laughs> and he was very good with the cover because you know being more in fine art and I I had no idea about, you know, bleed lines for printers and things when I was doing the cover. So he was actually really helpful on, you know, all the little details that he guided me on, you know, sent, sent me the um, format that things had to fit into with all the, the, the measurements for all the bleed lines and things that I needed to have. Yes. And he was quite helpful, but he gave me total freedom to do what I wanted. Which was also wonderful. God, it sounds like a fantastic project and quite surreal, really. You must have had a lot of interest and dreams around that stage. Well, <laughs> because I'd known the influence behind Pete Williams's lyrics, in a way I felt, you know, I was in a, in a really unique position to do um, the album sleeve. And I guess that the, 
you know, I, I sort of said to the guys, do you want me, you know, I can, I can put forward some suggestions. If you don't like them, fine, you know, go elsewhere. Mm. So in the end, I did like three different designs. And then it was quite a democratic process. And, you know, they picked, we, we discussed it, they picked the one they liked the best. But um, yeah, Ian Alcott gave me total freedom there you go um, that's to pretty... do what I wanted Doesn't... and then and then at the last minute he says oh by the way we need an inner sleeve and oh by the way would you like to do the labels for the album as well <laughs> <laughs> it sort of grew and grew yes. but it was great fun to do I would imagine and, you know as I say knowing the background to Pete's lyrics meant that I knew where to look for the images um, yeah so you, yes, that's good. That's good. Do you have a? Do you now have a copy of it? Has that been printed? Oh my God, you've got it! Cheesy, crazy. That's brilliant, isn't it? It's funny because um, just lastly, I did an interview with a member. But it was, you know, it was really. Sorry, I said because um, because there was another band on that label called the Hangman's Beautiful Daughters. Um, and again, they did recording in the late 80s in London in squats and stuff and got on with the rest of their life. And then Optic Nerve went, oh, we've got we've got enough for an album. So that's kind of come out and they've kind of gone, blimey, I can't, you know, that all that, God, we did this and completely forgot about it. And now that's been released on Optic Nerve. So they're certainly creating an awful lot of kind of people kind of reflecting back at those kind of years when they did the their sort of time in a band, really. So um, it's good, actually. I'm pleased for Pete, though, as well, because, you know, the lyrics were just so weird and so wonderful in a way. Um, and it was, I mean, I thoroughly enjoyed putting them into, you know, visual form. Yes. And I knew, and as I say, I knew where a lot of it had come from, you know, which, which newspaper stories he'd, he'd used as inspiration. So yeah. I went back and looked at some of those images from the papers. And got it. You've got the essence of the, the um, material. That's brilliant. Yeah. And that, dear listener, is the end of the interview. A massive thank you to B. Marshall for giving me the time for that interview. This has been David Eastall, the C86 show. And um, as I said, the crazies, uh, the album is coming out or is out on Optic Nerve Records from Preston, a Simple Vision LP. Do check it out. And also um, The Outsiders. I think that was a five cd box set that also came out that was on cherry red records and it is very very good so there you go christmas around the corner and all that anyway if you want to contact me you can on facebook twitter instagram just do c86 show keep it positive and groovy frankly mr shankly and um yes all these interviews have been archived on spotify itunes podbean check it out anyway have a great week stay safe